Hey, TCA. My name is Sarah Britsky, and I'm your host for TCAU, a podcast for your classical Christian and collaborative journey. I'm here today with Caleb Wright, our Rhetoric School Humanities teacher, and um, he is going to be talking to us about modern history. Caleb is a history extraordinaire, and he gave a forum talk for our parents this fall that was so great. I wanted to be able to share it with more of our parents. Of course, in the collaborative education model, our parents are becoming um, increasingly experts of the material alongside their students. And so we are hopeful that this podcast will help you to have good conversation with your students about modern history and um, about history in general. Caleb has great ideas and tips for that, and he's really engaging. So Caleb, glad to have you here today. Thank you. Excited to be here. Excited to talk about history. I would just love, you know, for you to tell us a little bit about why you love history um, and how you think about the subject uniquely. Yeah, history is so exciting because it is really just the story of us. Mm. Um, And I think the more that we have an understanding of history and the more that I've gained an understanding of history, whether that be, say, a personal history, um, like the history of my family or the country or just the way that the world is, the more I feel like I have a sense of place Mm. um, and kind of a grounding in the world that I live in. And it's just fun. There's (laughs) so many exciting and um, just bizarre stories that if they were written in some book or some movie, we would think would be too far-fetched. Um, but the fact <laughs> is that they are real and they, mm-hmm. they really happen. So it is, um, so much fun to engage with in that regard. Um, to think about history is really when we think about history, we're just kind of answering the questions, just why did things happen the way that they happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and why are things today the way that they are today? And to do that, we need to think about history on a couple of different levels. Um, I think most people, or at least the stereotype for history, um, is just that it's boring and it's a lot of just names, dates, and places. And it's the professor with the the tweed jacket and the elbow patches <laughs> and just the monotone voice reading straight out of the book while students struggle to stay awake. Mm-hmm. And and in one regard, if that is all the experience someone has with history, oh, of course it will be boring mm-hmm. because all it is is just a list of things that don't have any meaning outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I um, study history and then when I teach history, I try to make that come much more alive mm-hmm. to make connections between those facts so students see um, the cause and effect, but also to see the ideas behind um, what drives history, the ideas that these individuals have, the ideas and the motivations that cause these kind of world-changing events, mm. um, and really the ideas and the thoughts and the questions that that humanity has wrestled with um, for thousands of years and that we're still <laughs> honestly wrestling with today. So mm. um, I try to kind of bring all those things together, and that is kind of, you know, to use the, the classical terms, the grammar, the logic, and rhetoric of history, because mm. Um, we do still need those uh, names, dates, places, and events, kind of the, that, those grammar um, facts. But, but the point of those, those are only so, those are tools. Those are only useful so long as they allow us to talk about bigger and more important things um, that, that affect us. Yeah. And that's what I love about our school is that we have the opportunity to talk about history and the ways that history is really just answering the questions that humans have always had. Um, mm-hmm. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? And I think, um, yeah, I'm excited to dig into those ideas with you today, specifically for the modern period. And so before we do that, you have some really great thoughts about what's different about the modern history period and how we study history because of the time period. Yeah. Um, so like in one regard, um, like we study, like regardless of what time period we're studying, we study history the same. We're asking the same questions, but the the nature of the modern time period compared to the other cycles um, does make it different. And so, first of all, I think the obvious thing is that um, it's actually a lot shorter. 
And so we're only looking at about 150 years worth of history, depending on when you when you start what mm-hmm. the modern cycle is. Compare that to the 300 or 400 years of the early modern to the mm-hmm. thousand years of the medieval and the couple of thousand years of ancient. Um, and so what that allows us to do is look at the events and the ideas and much more uh, detail um, with like a much closer eye um, and, and really kind of dig into it um, a little bit more. Mm. Also, because as modern, we just have a lot more resources to look for mm. um, compared you know, ancient or medieval when we have just a handful of manuscripts um, and we're trying to build an idea of what life was like compared to um, having a much more abundant uh, cache of, of documents and of um, government uh, documents and even technology, things like we have videos mm-hmm. and documentaries and photos. Um, our students who are learning and reciting speeches, uh, they're not just going to re- read the speeches. They could go and actually watch the video mm-hmm. of JFK or go listen to the recording of Churchill delivering the speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes it come much more alive mm-hmm. um, for the students. And and lastly, um, that ties into, I think, that one of the third things that makes this so um interesting to study the modern time period is that you can really see kind of the fingerprints on today's world. Mm. You can, there's always that for history. Like even if we go back to Greece and and Rome, like there are still kind of those fingerprints from the, um, that period of history, um, on our world today, but it's much more evident when we're only looking 50 or hundred years back to see Mm. how issues from world war one, world war two, or the cold war, um, are still playing out in today's Mm. world. And so I think for students, um, the combination of those things Mm. makes the modern history cycle, uh, much more real. Um, sometimes ancient and medieval history can sometimes almost seem like fairy tales um, <laughs> of things that happened in the, a land that really didn't exist with people that were were so much different than us. And in the modern, it's like, no, this is kind of, this is much more closer to us. Like, and, and I might even have grandparents or great grandparents that were there for the events that we're talking about. Um, and it just grounds them in that information even more. I love that we can see the results of just history from a hundred years or so ago and the modern day and today. Um, but sometimes that means it's even a little bit hard to see what's happening, right? It's almost mm-hmm. too close to us. And you also mentioned that there is an abundance of resources about um, the modern time period. Mm-hmm. How could you give us just a couple key themes or ideas to ground us as we think about modern history? Yeah, there is so much. And that's, that is one of the challenges of the modern time period is to kind of weed out um, what is useful or how information can be useful rather than drowning mm-hmm. in it. And so when I mm-hmm. teach the modern time period, um, especially for the rhetoric students, I like to teach it as a history of ideas and especially in the modern time period, um, as the conflict of, of those ideas. Um, and so we have ideas on how society should be organized on how government should be organized and how religion should work. Um, and through the modern time period, those, those, those tend to be the driving force to many of the major conflicts. So we have things like liberalism, um, but also authoritarianism. We have capitalism and the rise of communism. We have democracy versus fascism. Um, even coming from the imperial world, we have things like globalization versus nationalism um, and imperialism versus self-determination. And, and these are conflicts that um, rub up against each other, create friction, create conflict. Um, and sometimes even after the conflict have more questions than they do answers. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that these are the motivations, um, these are the questions that people are trying to see answer, um, 
help us give an understanding of why things are happening the way they're happening and also when they're happening. Mm -hmm. Why does this war happen mm -hmm. where and when it does and not earlier and not later? Mm -hmm. um, why does this revolution happen when it does and not earlier and not mm -hmm. later? Um, and in the country that it happens in and understanding, hey, these are the ideas that are actually sparking people's imaginations mm -hmm. um, to perceive a future um, that they can create. I feel like that is kind of the thread that can tie it together for us rather than getting lost in the number of, you know, leaders and dates and the war started at this year and ended this year and the battles or whatever it may be mm -hmm. um, to have this as like, here are the ideas that are, that are strung mm -hmm. through. Um, I feel like that ties the modern cycle together for mm -hmm. us. Yeah, that's interesting because we think about the history pegs being dates and, and people, mm -hmm. and those are certainly important, mm -hmm. but it's also interesting to consider that those ideals and the way that ideas have worked out can almost function like memory pegs, right? To think mm -hmm. about when did nationalism come as mm -hmm. a big idea? When was, you know, communism first an idea and how did mm -hmm. that affect what came after? Uh, that's just a, that's a cool way to think about those ideas um, grounding our study. And, and so hopefully we'll see those things worked out as you talk about mm -hmm. then the timeline of the modern period, um, because you mentioned a lot of those ideas. Hopefully we'll see those work out mm -hmm. as you kind of go through each of the different parts of the, of the modern period. Um, would you talk a little bit about how you think about the modern period, those 150 yeah. or so years? Yeah. So I think one thing to point before I even get started, I think one thing that's mm -hmm. important to point out is as we, as we break up the, the cycles, um, these are things that historians have done looking at the past. Mm -hmm. So the people at the time, um, are not necessarily giving themselves these these titles or these these eras. Um, someone did not wake up in 1850 on January 1st and say, "Oh, it's the modern time period now. <laughs> Goodbye, early modern." Um, and and so it's not um, that clear on some of these issues that there's like, "Hey, all the problems were solved. Mm. We had a break, and now here's all the new questions that come up." So mm. as we enter this year um, in the middle of the 1800s, um, the world is still very much grappling with the issues of the late 1700s um, mm. and and where they, where they came from. And so um, this isn't necessarily like a clean break from one to the mm. other. We're kind of picking up the story as, as we go. Mm. And so as I look at the modern time period, there is roughly about four um, sections that I break it down into. We look at the era of imperialism, um, which la lasts roughly from the mid 1800s to the, the very early 1900s. Mm. Um, then we look at the era of World War One and its aftermath. Mm. Um, then we have kind of the era of totalitarianism that culminates in World War II. Mm. Um, and then lastly, that kind of springs boards us into the Cold War and, and really how that kind of shapes the world that we mm. live in today. And again, thinking about here are the ideas and cause and effect of how, um, yes, we can kind of look at these as, as four separate, um, four separate sections of the modern time period, but they really cause one another. And it is tricky to say, okay, well, when does, mm -hmm. you know, totalitarianism start after World War One is over? Um, it's a really great area that doesn't have this black and white. So they do all, even though I'm mm -hmm. teaching them as separate sections, they do really all kind of meld together mm -hmm. um, as one thing and are linked by those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even are kind of like responses to each other, yes. right? Yes. So talk a little bit about the first general period of the modern era that you mentioned was imperialism and industrialization. Yeah. So, what should we know from that era? Yeah, yeah. So talking about imperialism. So again, imperialism is nothing new. Um, there's been imperialism and since, um, and actually, can you define imperialism for us? Okay. Yeah. So imperialism is, um, simply put, is one country um, exerting their force and control over another nation of people. Um, and we see this, you know, almost as soon as, you know, the Spanish arrive in, in the new world, 
um, in the 1500s and the Portuguese as well, um, making colonies, subduing um, and kind of controlling with varying levels of severity um, other populations. So, so imperialism is nothing new. But what makes it different in this modern time period is how it gets kind of coupled with industrialization. Um, and so the, the technology um, essentially allows these European nations to um, much more thoroughly um, imperialize the lands that they are going to. Um, because they can create a much stronger infrastructure. They can get deeper into the lands. Um, mm. They they can get into the the jungles and the mountains of Africa mm. um, and have a much more thorough con- control. Um, the transportation is quicker. Mm. Um, and this is, this is honestly really where we kind of have the, uh, still like an increase in what we would think of today as globalization. Mm. Um, and many of the things that, um, and so it makes the world smaller. Um, mm. And it becomes opportunities for for people to um, disperse across the globe, um, and but also vice versa. So this is not just you know as an example, this is not just an opportunity for for British to travel to India, but also for Indians to travel to to Britain, mm-hmm. um, and and that same relationship through many other kind of mother countries and colonies happens as well. And but most of that has to do with industrialization and mm-hmm. the fact that we have the rise of, of steamships going, um, railroads, um, better um, medicine. Mm. Honestly, mm. Um, and things of that nature allows the colonization efforts to be a lot more pervasive um, in the areas that they are being that are being colonized. Mm. And um, the kind of the key thing to think about imperialism and what's difficult about it um, is that it really is like this double-edged sword. How there is like a lot of good that comes about through European imperialization, um, colonization, the spreading of this technology, this this. Um, the, the spreading of Christianity, the, mm-hmm. um, the rise of building hospitals and schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time that comes at the price often of the dignity and the humanity mm-hmm. of, uh, or, and even the, the political freedom of the people being colonized. Mm-hmm. Um, and what makes this really difficult and the questions that I want the kids to grapple with is that you can't really separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like there was just some mistake that they made and we could have had all of the really good things without having um, any of any of any of the bad things. Um, but they're they're two sides of the same coin or the two edges of the same sword. Um, and so, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to that when we have so some so many good things? And especially from a Christian perspective, seeing Christianity being spread in India and Africa and South America, um, and which is really the reason why so much of South America and Africa are still at least nominally Christian today mm-hmm. is the result of imperialism. But at the same time, seeing the horrors um, that those same people professing Christianity mm-hmm. um, also inflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a difficult question to, to grapple with, mm-hmm. but, but one that, that we need to, to look at honestly. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about the idea of chronological snobbery, which we steal mm-hmm. from C.S. Lewis, yeah. but we look back and think we could have done it better. We would not have made those mistakes. And mm-hmm. actually to think about, how even now with good intentions, mm-hmm. we are often doing things that later we'll look back on and think, oh, that was a huge miss. Um, yeah. So I, I love that conversation about mm-hmm. the good and the bad and how that's even really probably true now that all humans are mixed in their intentions. Mm-hmm. No one has totally pure intentions and also humans are limited. We can't know the outcome of our actions. And mm-hmm. so in our best efforts, we are sometimes met with results that are not what we desired. And so that's a great conversation to have. Um do we hit on kind of the the key ideas? We talk about this as an age of extremes and an age of the conflict of ideas in imperialism. What would you say are the ideas that are really um, at stake or being argued? Yeah. So some of the main ideas is just thinking, well, what is of value 
um, in society, this idea of, because the questions that we have, it's not like those were not questions that were brought up. Mm. Um, people at the time period were, were debating of like, this is not right. Um, who has sovereignty, Mm. um, who should have control, um, versus other people saying, well, if they're living incorrectly, there's a way that I see it. Why wouldn't I, I go incorrect? Mm. Um, this is kind of the idea of the white man's burden, um, Mm. kind of popularized by Rudyard Kipling of this is a duty that we have because we are more civilized and more, Mm. um, correct in our means of living. So, uh, even, even out of a good heart, like this, why wouldn't I go make them live the correct and proper way? Mm. Um, but there was certainly resistance to that. And so this idea of, um, again, being able to exercise yourself, um, and self-determination mm-hmm. versus also this nationalism, because we're going to go and make Britain or France or Germany, we're going to make them great by making these colonies and subduing mm-hmm. these other people, um, versus, well, do these people have dignity? Do these people mm-hmm. have a right to their own self-determination? Do they have the right to make decisions for themselves? Um, those were, those are some of the things that are, that are at stake. Um, and that's super interesting because countries have always been trying to gain more land and people in power. And perhaps this is one of the first years where people were questioning if it was okay to take over another country or people group, right? Cause that's mm-hmm. been happening for thousands of years, but now post enlightenment, there's actually a new thought about what it is to be a human and to have self-determination. That's probably a new idea. A little bit. Yeah. And also just the, I would also argue again, like the globalization of it, the, the fact that this is a smaller world. Um, the citizens of the country were much more aware um, than before in some of these cases of what was going on. Mm. Um, so that your your typical British Londoner was much more aware of what was going on in London in the 1800s than um, what they might have been aware of, say, what was going mm. on in their Canadian colonies in mm. the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is the you know the rise of technology, the rise of media. Literacy. Um, and literacy mm-hmm. and all those things mm-hmm. together. And, and that helps spawn some of those concerns and those movements. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, well, let's move on to the next era after imperialization and industrialization. What happens in the world? Yeah, so obviously the the first like kind of cataclysmic event, um, at least in Europe, is is World War One. But how did, how that connects to imperialism is the idea that all these nations um, were trying to show themselves superior. Imperialism being one part of that, but essentially by the beginning of the 1900s, they almost, to put it very simply, uh, ran out of room, um, and. And so those imperialistic frictions kind of came home to, to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that friction started, um, these countries that were always kind of jostling positions, trying to show themselves as better than the other, um, finally came to fruition. We had the outbreak of, of World War I. Mm-hmm. And um, the two, I think, main takeaways of World War I um, that I want the kids to get is, number one, it, it's almost much more devastating to Europe psychologically than it is physically, even with the mm-hmm. amount of physical devastation and death. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming out of World War One, uh, Europeans all across the board are just shocked that they were able to do that to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the uh, the writer and philosopher Jean Valéry called it the wounded mind, mm-hmm. and we do see a rise in things like atheism and existentialism mm-hmm. after the fact of how could we even do this to one another. Mm-hmm. And secondly, after we look at the end of World War One, um, one of the problems is that it doesn't really answer any of the questions. There's really almost no winners mm-hmm. that come out of World War One, and so all these countries when they when they finish. Um, and when the the proverbial dust settles on the battleground, um, all of them feel like they have a claim to mm-hmm. to something from the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just reignites a lot of the same sparks, um, a lot of the same tensions, which mm-hmm. is why only, you know, 30 years later um, from the war to end all wars, do we have an even bigger, more destructive war. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really just the fact that people 
people's worldviews are, are shaken mm. um, with World War I, and which is why we have a variety of responses from it, how some countries turn to totalitarianism and the rise of fascism or communism. Uh, America withdraws to isolationism, just saying we don't want to get involved in that. Mm. Britain, Britain goes very pacifist, right? We don't want this, whatever we, needs to happen so this doesn't happen again. Mm. Um, and we see this in art, even with the rise mm. of things like futurism or Dadaism, which is like, there is no meaning. Mm. Um, because if we can do this to each other um, mm. it, for over nothing um, mm. to get accomplished, nothing, well, what's the point? Mm -hmm. um, mm. And so it, again, psychologically more than the devastation, more than the collapse of governments, uh, world war one kind of wounds Europe in that regard. Um, and is, and is a direct cause of, of the devastation that happens in world war two. Mm. Okay. Well, so then you've given us a great setup into world war two. Yeah. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. Third world era. War II. Now, obviously world war two is so, massive in mm. scale, much more massive than World War I. Um, there are entire classes, you know, on even just certain aspects of World War II. Um, and so it is really the challenge of how do you take this large amount of information and, and distill it down into something um, understandable. And so, the, again, two things that I want the students to take away from is, number one, seeing how this is a conflict of ideas, right? We have... Um, not just totalitarianism but democ and democracy, um, but also two different types of totalitarian regimes. And maybe, maybe it'd be helpful actually to d define totalitarianism. Yeah, so totalitarianism mm -hmm. is a, um, a government or a society with a really strong central power, but one that also really seeks to control the way that normal citizens live. Hmm. Um, so to separate it from authoritarianism, authoritarianism is having a very powerful central government and as long as the people aren't revolting, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, whereas totalitarianism really wants the common person to be involved. Um, so when we see things like Nazism, mm. um, the Nazi high command really genuinely wants that German farmer, that German blacksmith to be engaging and living the lifestyle mm. um, that they want. Mm. The, uh, the, the Soviet um, regime really mm. wants that factory worker um, to be engaging and living out the principles of, mm. of socialism, mm. as opposed to just, just as long as I have power and you guys aren't revolting, Got it. that, kind of, okay, that mm -hmm. kind of makes a difference between totalitarianism and authoritarianism. So, mm -hmm. so we have the, the conflict, not just of here's democracy um, and here's kind of England and, and the United States versus the fascists of um, Germany and Italy, but also this conflict between Soviet communism and, and German fascism. Um, and how really understanding like this is like a mutually exclusive uh, thing for these for these people. Um, it is this is the driving force more than any really kind of um, ethnic animosity, more mm. than any megalomania on the part of these leaders. It really is this worldview that they genuinely hold. Um, that is driving these decisions. They adopt these worldviews because they believe it, not because it's just a power grab for them to, to have control. This is the way they think the world should work and they're going to make the world um, essentially conform to their ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's the ideas of Nazism. Nazism or communism, communism or even mm -hmm. to a certain extent, democracy, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have, a, mm -hmm. we in the United States have a strong belief in, 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 in things like self-determination mm -hmm. um, for other nations. And so even though it's maybe not necessarily directly benefiting us, but we're fighting for those causes outside of our own yeah. national interests as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is really the conflict of ideas coming to fruition in mm -hmm. World War II. Yes. That's, I've never thought about that as unique to that particular 
uh, conflict. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing to take away from World War II, um, especially compared to World War I, is, is just the scale. Mm-hmm. Um, casualty numbers and things of that nature are um, always difficult to pin down. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, World War I had somewhere around uh, 20 to 30 million um, casualties altogether. Um, it's about fourfold, um, wow. for, for world war two wow. and, and, um, places like the Soviet union and China alone kind of match the numbers from world war one. There's, mm-hmm. you know, um, estimates of about 30 million casualties, civilian and military mm-hmm. just in the Soviet union and perhaps 30 to 40 just military and civilian just in, um, China. Um, so just getting the idea, like this is, yes, this is a continuation, but this is a, because of things like technology, Mm-hmm. Um, but also those mindsets of, um, because the, of the ideas that were held, mm-hmm. um, the racial and ethnic and political ideology of the participants, uh, really made it just, um, just absolutely brutal. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so how did that lead us into the last era of the cold war? So one of the key differences between World War One and World War Two is that there are kind of clear winners mm-hmm. after World War II. Um, the problem is that those clear winners uh, don't get along. <laughs> and so um, where we had at that, at the, there was just kind of a jumble of everybody find, trying to fight for a seat at the table at the end of World War One. At the end of the World War Two, we pretty clearly have the West led mm-hmm. by the United States and, and Britain versus um, the communist world led by the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. an up and coming China. And it really creates this kind of bipolar um, power structure that, that dominates world politics, um, for the next, uh, 40 to 50 years. Mm. And what I find so fascinating about the cold war is that it really does this, this divide between, um, these, again, these belief systems of how society and how government should be run really is evident in everything that we do. This isn't Mm. just the cold war. Isn't something that is just played out in governments and in proxy wars or things like that. It's in art. Mm. Um, it's in consumption, like uh, it's in shopping habits, even Mm -hmm. like, um, Mm. it's, it's really everywhere. So talk about that. Like, give me an example. Yeah. So like one of, um, uh, so even just thinking about, um, movies. Mm. So in the fifties, one of the, and science fiction in particular, in the fifties, some of the many, many popular movies, um, in the United States, we're all about these aliens coming in. Right. Mm-hmm. And the problem was though, that these aliens look just like us and we mm. can't determine who's human and who's alien, but the aliens really have mm. an intent to destroy. Um, well, if that's not worries about communist infiltration, like, I don't know what is right. Yeah. Or, um, mm. for example, there's an episode of Star Trek, the original one with, with William Shatner, where there is a, they go to a planet and the planet is at war and the, the crew is designed there to, um, to basically bring order and to bring structure. And what do they give these alien people to set up a new society? The U S constitution. <laughs> if that, like if that's what everyone not, really needs, <laughs> if that's not propaganda, I don't know what is mm. right. But this also plays out too. Cause so the whole idea was everything was this battleground mm. um, to prove our way superior than yours. Mm. Um, like if we're, we can prove we're superior by building better rockets and mm. getting to space or getting to the moon quicker. We can prove we're better by having better hockey teams or better soccer teams that beat your hockey and soccer and basketball mm. teams. We can prove that we're better because our musicians um, are better than your musicians mm. when we go on tour and then you come here or something like that. Mm. And so every kind of aspect of, of life was really kind of set up in this divide of like, mm. are we um, 
proving ourselves to be better um, than this other worldview. And I think that that is sobering right there. Um, so many good things about America and what we've done, but just the idea of like, until Jesus comes back, right. Mm -hmm. It's not about us being better. It's about looking toward that heavenly kingdom, right. Every, every man-made government is misguided. And so it's very sobering, Mm -hmm. um, and good to say, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) Um, well that brings us to, right. I know you kind of have a great thought about like What's really history, right? Are, mm-hmm. are we at the end of it then with Cold War or how do we think about the well, last? Well, really, really, it's an interesting time because then it, it, it brings up the question of when does history kind of stop and mm-hmm. more, morph into something like current events. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the key thing we can look at, uh, especially even looking at post-Cold um, War, um, is just how we are still, even in today, um, grappling with a lot of the same questions. Mm-hmm. And um, again, a lot of the same just because the Cold War was ended doesn't mean this conflict of worldview was resolved. Mm. Um, and that's mm. still what we're seeing today with the conflicts that we're seeing in, mm. in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Um, and, and even w- within Europe and the United States, mm. just, it is a conflict of worldview and perspective mm. um, that are basically are similar questions that have been asked for, mm. for the past centuries. It's interesting. We like to think now we have things all figured out, but we're really just in some of the same quandaries. And so that's, um, again, yeah, a call to look forward to asking God to bring clarity. Um, I guess in conclusion, Kale, this has been so great. This is a super helpful overview. What do you hope for both TCA students and parents as, as they study history? What do you hope that they learn or, and grow? How do you hope it changes them? Yeah, I think, first of all, I just hope they love history and grow to love it. I think one of the great things about history is that no matter what you enjoy, there's a history of it. Um, and that can be your, that can be your gateway into it. Um, so my personal thing, I love sports and my history thesis was on sports and that was my doorway into understanding a particular time and place in the world. If it's music, if it's fashion, if it's food, um, there's a history of that and that can be your way to get into it. Secondly, like I mentioned before, I think it just gives you a a kind of a grounding. Um, It gives you a better idea of your place in the world, um, where you have come from as a society and maybe even as a family. Um, But I think third also, I think it really does give us hope um, and just the sovereignty of God um, that we see how things have played out. Um, And as we look for it, like we can see that like, no, God is in control of this. that, and that all things do work together for his glory. And the more that we study history, and especially from this, this Christian worldview, the more that we can rest in that truth. Yeah, there's certainly a humility there that yes. um, he knows and we don't, um, and we can be um, learning to worship him more through this. So thanks for the ways you do that with our students. Thanks for uh, just your wisdom today on the podcast, Caleb. We appreciate you. Thank you. Yep, great to talk today.